Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Joel Christensen, author of The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. Joel Christensen is Associate Professor and Chair of Classical Studies at Brandeis University. He is co-author of A Beginner's Guide to Homer and Homer's Thebes. We spoke to Joel about how the Greek epic tradition was not based on the written word, but on large-scale performances in which ancient audiences experienced the stories as ways to think about their own lives. How the Odyssey in particular offered audiences a form of folk psychology and what lessons modern cognitive psychology can learn from Homer. Hello, Joel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, well, I want to give you a congratulations on your new book, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. It sounds like a very exciting book. And I think it's, it's interesting that I'm, I'm talking from Ithaca. I'm located in Ithaca, and that's the island home of Odysseus, obviously not uh, in the Greek archipelago, but uh, named after that. So tell us what inspired you to write a book on the Odyssey. I think the primary thing that probably inspired me to write a book on the Odyssey was teaching the Odyssey year in and year out. Um, I did my early work and graduate school and my dissertation um, on the Iliad. Um, and you know the story I usually tell, which uh, doesn't make it untrue that I tell it all the time, um, is that we're, you know, the, what we work on and what we get attracted to is based in part on our experience. Um, so I started graduate school um, two, uh, about a month before 9-11. I moved to New York City um, and I was in New York City for 9-11. Um, and over the years that I worked um, in graduate school, I kept going back to the Iliad as a poem of war, as a poem of rhetoric and politics. Um, and when I left graduate school and started teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio, um, what I found frustratingly is that the Iliad didn't seem to uh, uh, get students to respond to it. On the other hand, they kept going back to the Odyssey. So I teach my most sort of thrilling, exciting classes um, on the Odyssey, a poem I didn't know as well um, and that I didn't think I understood or even respected as much. Um, so part of what really pushed me was trying to understand why students were getting such fulfilling experiences from reading the Odyssey um, when I didn't. Um, so the real sort of key moment for me um, happened in around 2011. My dad died suddenly. Um, and I found myself uh, returning to the Odyssey in class and thinking about the ways in which it forces us to think about um, the way that other people in your life create your identity for you. So for people who may not remember the Odyssey, um, Odysseus returns home after 20 years, and he's not fully home until after a series of uh, reunions, first with the son he never really knew, his wife, and then this problematic part in book 24 of the Odyssey, where Odysseus shows up in disguise still, and he tricks his father Laertes, and his father cries, and then he immediately relents and says, no, no, I'm your son Odysseus, I'm here, um, and his father doesn't believe him. And he has to prove it to him by showing him his scar that he got from when he was a young man on a hunting trip. And then they go through this um, uh, orchard and not name the trees that their fathers and grandfathers planted and they took care of when Odysseus was young. And one day I was teaching that um, and just completely undone by it because it made me remember my father 
and the way he bought five lands, five acres of land in the middle of the woods in Maine when I was in third grade. And we spent the rest of his life trying to turn that into like lawn and gardens, right? By the time I was in sixth grade, I'd have to stop the lawnmower and refuel in the process of mowing this ridiculous lawn. Um, so I think what I started to understand from the Odyssey um, is the how much rereading and growing with a narrative repays you, uh, but also how much your place in life dictates or shapes the way you receive a narrative. So again, you know, I responded to the Iliad as a younger man in a time of war, living in New York City, seeing the anti-war protests, um, debating with friends about the war on terror. Um, and when I returned to the Odyssey and taught it, I saw my students responding, but I also was a father. We had two children in, in, in you know, 16 months and I'd lost a father. So I started to see the Odyssey in a way as a poem about what it means to choose to live and what you need to do in order um, to survive. And the sort of the, the next part of this was the psychology angle. Um, and the psychology angle is this. Um, we're born without a manual on how to use the human mind, right? Um, and I've always been interested in how the, what poetry does in the world, how it shifts people, how it changes them, um, and how narratives uh, shape you over time. And as I watched students respond to the Odyssey, what I saw them responding to was the building of character, identity, and really emotional responses. So my question started to be, how does the Odyssey anticipate the way its audience's minds work? Um, and how does it reflect the way minds work together in the world, right? Both, both emotionally um, and, um, and sort of intellectually. Um, so first step, uh, I'll, I'll pause after this. A first and sort of critical step out of that day where I was thinking about Odysseus and his father and the trees. Um, I read a short article in the New York Times. It was an op-ed um, about a concept called learned helplessness. Um, and as a basic co concept that's been around since like 1900 or so, um, it, it says that when we experience failure, we're less likely to try after repeated failure. And we're also, it turns out, um, liable to succeed less when we try because we get habituated to the idea that we won't succeed. And we sort of, you both lose skill sets, right? Um, but you also lose in an extent the uh, belief that you can do something to change your surroundings. Um, so this has been, this has been, you know, used to describe depression, uh, cycles of, pro of poverty, responses to racism and trauma. Um, and I went into class with this idea and uh, addressed the problem at the beginning of the Odyssey, which is that Odysseus has been on this island for seven years, right? We see him here in book five of the Odyssey. He's been in this island seven years, crying all day at the edge of the sea and having sex with Calypso at night, even though he doesn't really want to. And then Hermes comes and says, make a ship or have him make a raft so he can leave. And I've all, and we had been talking the day before about why doesn't he try, right? Why doesn't he build a ship until that moment? Um, and there are all sorts of arguments you can make. Oh, well, it's the gods. He knows he can't go. But at the basic level, my question was this. Can we imagine that the Odyssey is depicting someone who's been broken down by life, 
who doesn't believe that he can succeed anymore and needs something radical to happen to shift him out of it? And how would this shape our reading of the epic um, and help us understand what ancient audiences were doing with it? So at a very basic level, like that's the first observation that I sort of built the research in the book on. Um, and I moved from there to sort of look at a whole series of different ideas of the way human minds work and modern psychology, both clinical and cognitive, um, to really look at the epic as a whole with a basic question like, what does it do in the world? What does it say about human minds? Um, and why is that an important question to ask now? Wow, that's a beautiful and amazing story. I mean, you have, you have firsthand experience of the Odyssey as a therapeutic tool. You see your students uh, responding to it and, and seeing that it helps them compared to the Iliad. Um, so tell us, you have, you have a term called folk psychology. Tell us how reading, hearing, experiencing the Odyssey is therapeutic. So um, folk psychology is an idea that you'll see in different, um, in different texts in different way, but the main author I draw on is a guy named Jerome Bruner. Um, he is a, a cognitive psychologist who used to teach at Harvard. Um, and he has a book named, um, I think it's a Possible Worlds, Actual Minds, or may, maybe you flip it around. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you can have embedded in a narrative tradition a basic concept of how human minds work and don't work. Um, and he calls this a folk psychology. And he doesn't use the word folk in any way to uh, contrast it with say official or scientific, just that it's something that doesn't come out of the clinical environment. And it's a basic assumption of the way human minds work in the world. Um, so for me, uh, understanding the epic or Greek epic tradition as psychological um, or as, as conveying folk psychology um, is based in understanding its performance context and the way people experienced it in the ancient world. Um, so we too typically experience ancient literature as something on the page we read alone and think about, um, and then only once or twice. But earlier I mentioned that the, the important step of rereading and returning to a narrative as you change in life. In the ancient world, audiences would have heard sections of Greek, Greek epic all the time. And they would have seen it performed in monumental performances. And they would have had it throughout their life. They would have talked about it. They would have reflected on it. Um, and so it has sort of a, a narrative load and occupies a cultural space that almost nothing in our modern world does, right? Like maybe if you took like uh, religious texts added the Marvel universe, and then threw in some fan fiction altogether, it might have the cultural space that Epic had in the ancient world. Um, and so even before like Aristotle and philosophers talked about tragedy and the catharsis that happened there, I think that ancient audiences um, experienced Epic as a way to think about their own lives and their own problems. And it changed over time with them. So part of the performance context is that uh, the Epics weren't written down. They weren't perfect scripts. They were performed and sung in response to audience um, interest. And so really what they are, are complex narrative engagements. They don't give solutions to problems. They give ways to think about what it means to be a human. So to go back to this idea of learned helplessness that I mentioned, the epic, uh, the Odyssey actually presents three different figures who are paralyzed by their inability to have agency in the world. First, we see Telemachus in book one, then we see Odysseus in book five, 
and throughout we see Penelope. So the three chief characters in this um, epic are sidelined from the action. They can't make choices. They don't know how to navigate in the world. And what we get then are different interventions that communicate how they can re-engage with the world and what they need. Telemachus needs a tutor. He needs someone to show him how to act. And so and he needs to hear other stories and different examples of how people work in the world. Odysseus needs something that's akin to cognitive behavioral therapy. He needs to try and then he needs to fail again. So in book five, when he people often forget when he leaves that lonely island, he almost dies several times. His ship wrecks again. He has to choose to swim to safety um, and he has to decide to live. And then the most, the central part of the Odyssey, if you ask an average person what they remember from the Odyssey, nine times after out of 10, they'll remember part of the story Odysseus tells himself. So from books nine through 12, Odysseus tells all the famous stuff from the Odyssey, the bag of the winds, the cave of the Cyclops, going to the underworld, Circe changing the men, the sirens, that's all his story. And I think the pri primary lesson we learn in the middle of the epic is that the way you regain agency in the world is by getting control of your own story, by telling stories about yourself that put you in the center of the action. Um, and I really got this inspiration from the, uh, the clinical therapy practice of narrative therapy as uh, written by um, a man named Michael White, who's from Australia. Um, and he really emphasizes, and this echoes a lot of what happens in clinical therapy um, and talk therapy, um, which is that part of the reason we can't act in the world, part of the dysfunction we feel is that we believe bad things about ourselves, right? Or we believe that we didn't have control of situations or we did have control of situations where we didn't. So part of the goal of talking about stories and retelling our own stories is figuring out where our own responsibility stands and where it doesn't. Um, and I know I'm going on a little long in this one, but the beginning of the Odyssey, um, Zeus says this fabulous thing that I return to several times in the book. He's looking down on the mortals and he says, mortals, they're always blaming us for their problems when they make their fate worse than it needs to be because of their own stupidity, right? And the word stupidity is recklessness or blindness, but this is a radical break with the mythical tradition. It's a break, you know, when people read the Iliad, they'll say, oh, what's fate and what's divine will? The beginning of the Odyssey, Zeus is saying, no, yeah, some things are gonna be fated, right? But you also have some responsibility for your life. So back to sort of your earlier question, what makes the epic therapeutic? It gives you a series of case studies, really, and a lingering question throughout. And the question is, how are the players in the epic responsible for their own suffering and how are they not? And I think by going through this process, this narrative process, you learn to ask the question about your own life, right? You learn to think about causality and agency differently. You learn to accept that there are some things you can't control, but that even within that range, um, there are some things you could if you just take it into your own hands. That's really cool. I, I like that the quote that you had from Zeus, and that the that this that the Odyssey offers in many ways, as you said, folk psychology, or we could say proto psychology, of giving people agency and, and growing from um, their experiences. That's beautiful. Um, so 
so we have this as a form of psychology. What can modern psychology or cognitive science learn from Homer? Well, um, I think one thing you can learn is that it takes a long time <laughs> to heal a human mind. That's right? true. <laughs> but, but even more importantly, there's a situatedness, right? There's a community aspect of mental health um, that I think often in the West we get too far away from, right? Um, the whole notion, one of the most powerful lessons that I've gained from the Odyssey um, is that you aren't who you say you are. You are who other people say you are. And one of the most uncomfortable and painful things in our life um, is when other people believe or say things about us that are so that con that conflict with what we believe about ourselves, right? And so for me, these are different levels of narrative and story, right? Um, the more the the most honest you can be in life um, is if other people know what's going on in your mind, right? If other people say the th same things about you and believe them about you that you do. And the most pain comes from when you have that gap between the two. So I think one thing to learn um, and to really focus on for psychologists and for individuals um, is that Odysseus doesn't get to be home until, um, or and he doesn't get to be Odysseus until he's embraced by others, right? So our identities are comprised of social roles we don't control. Um, and I think that runs against uh, some of the um, you know, popular spirit, especially of American individualism, the idea that you are uh, uh, an individual and that you can exert your will, right? But this goes back you know, to the old line of poetry that you know, no man is an island, right? Independent of the main. Um, and I think, so, I think that's a powerful reminder. Um, but I think it also, um, it's a good reminder for um, modern clinical practitioners, but also um, theoretical um, that, you know, human minds haven't changed radically, right? I mean, for in 2000 years, um, and that there, there's a lot of wisdom in traditional narratives um, and traditional cultures um, that can be, I don't wanna say confirmed, right? But can be explored from the perspective of the scientific side as well. Um, so one of the things that I find particularly troubling um, is the notion that, you know, we're going to solve our, all of our problems with science, right, or, or drugs, um, when, uh, you know, the, the harder lesson is that some things take time and some things can't be fixed. Um, so I think what I found remarkably um, is how many modern concepts are echoed in the Odyssey, right? Um, now, part of the problem there, and I think a danger of my approach, is that I've gone looking for them, right? <laughs> but I think the process of conversation between the worlds is incredibly enriching um, and can really help us understand the final important thing, which I think psychologists understand, but which in the public we don't talk about enough, which is the power of story. So one of the things that has been really um, overwhelming and sad has, has, while I've written this book um, is watching how much narrative gets away from people and how fast it moves online, how much it changes the way we look at the world um, and can really pervert our public discourse, right? About what we believe our place in the world is and what stories we choose to believe. Um, so this year, as we've been in isolation, I've been thinking, look, we have um, social distancing for diseases. Sometimes we need them for bad ideas as well.
right? And I don't know how to do that. Um, but here's the, the thing. Um, you talk about it being in Ithaca, New York, right? Or odd Odysseus going home to Ithaca. It takes a very long time to get from Ithaca to Troy and back again. Um, here, now we can move our stories and our identities in, in the blink of an eye. And um, we haven't adapted to that speed of storytelling and that speed of identity construction. Um, so I think if anything, we need to reflect on the power of story and really by the end of the epic um, and the end of the book, uh, as I write it, um, it's really self-reflected, uh, reflective in thinking about how dangerous narrative can be, how tales and stories and ideas about our identity can move us to places um, where we harm communities instead of help them. That's fascinating uh, and refreshing in that, as you uh, so well said, we live in a, a very fast paced world um, where things are expected to change um, and, uh, uh, very rapidly. And, and the news cycle um, and the media cycle that we, that we are in doesn't allow narrative to actually gestate or, or grow. It's just, there's a next door, new story, new story, new story. And it, uh, it is refreshing that, that this ancient tale, this ancient epic has so much to offer us if we just dive into it. There's a great quote that you have at the very beginning of the book by Heraclitus, the person who journeys on every road cannot find the limits of the soul by walking. That is how deep its story is. And our, our soul searching, our soul mining requires time, requires mm. depth. And we live in an age of superficiality um, in many ways. But folks like you are mining, <laughs> mining the depths of these traditions and bringing this out. And we encourage readers to pick up uh, Joel's new book, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology and the Therapy of Epic. We've only scratched the surface, certainly on uh, what you've uncovered with your research, but this has been a fascinating conversation that I'm sure we could go on for hours. There's so much to talk about, but I, I so appreciate you coming onto the podcast and, and sharing what you've found. Thank you. It's always great to talk about Homer. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Well, great talking with you and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. That was Joel Christensen, author of The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. If you're on Twitter, you can follow him at S-E-N-T-A-N-T-I-Q. If you'd like to purchase his new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website, which is cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>